0: Welcome to this second episode of Recovering, where we make space to look again at news stories with the journalists who covered them. I'm Alicia Gordon, General Manager at Media Chaplaincy New Zealand. There's always more to a news story than what you see. Throughout Recovering, broadcaster and chaplain Reverend Frank Ritchie has been joined by journalists from across New Zealand's media industry. In this episode, TVNZ reporter Joy Reid talks with Frank about covering the Christchurch earthquake of February 2011 and how the ongoing trauma affected her reporting. After very nearly walking away from the industry, Joy has stuck it out in journalism, even working as a Europe correspondent for TVNZ, covering a royal wedding, the Paris riots, and tackling the daunting task of helping New Zealanders make sense of Brexit.
1: Because of the wonder of modern technology, Joy's with us in her home in Christchurch. Thanks for joining us.
2: My absolute pleasure. I'm on maternity leave, just a little bit of explainer about why I might be at home.
1: Hey, let's dive in first by promoting something that's very dear to your heart, one mother to another. I think that's a fantastic place to start because it gives us a window into who you are as a person. So can you explain to us one mother to another?
2: Yeah, well, essentially, it's a charity that I started about five years ago with a friend of mine. We'd both had hospital experiences with our kids. So we started a charity um, very organically, providing gift bags to these mums who were in this situation. And now it's grown. We do 170 gift bags every month to mums in four wards of three South Highland hospitals. Mm,
1: What was that experience for you? Talk us through that.
2: Well, both my eldest and my youngest have um, spent their first hours or days in the neonatal intensive care unit. With Jonathan, who's now almost eight, that was a real shock. Uh, It was a very traumatic birth, so he was whisked away pretty quickly in a very severe state. And then my youngest, again, completely unrelated, she was born in February and wasn't breathing after three minutes, and so they tried their best uh, and then said, look, she needs to be in the neonatal intensive care unit and took her away. And I just thought to myself, oh, my goodness, not again. <laughs> like, What are the chances? And it's horrible. You, you've, you've had this baby inside you for nine months, and then all of a sudden they're just not there and they're not even with you. My husband was was with Annabelle and sending me photos of what she looked like while I'm in recovery. And, again, I felt that fear and vulnerability. I was much more of an experienced mum this time around, but I still felt really helpless and... Um, Oh, I'm choking up to thinking about it like it's just it's a really hard place to be and it's so unnatural to have your baby taking off you. So essentially our charity just wants to support mothers or parents or caregivers or foster parents, grandparents, whoever it is walking through that journey.
1: Now, of course, all this has taken place, too, with you being the European correspondent for TVNZ in the mix there for a stint as well. Usually, that's a single person's game because you hop off overseas, you have to be around in different places, you probably haven't got a lot of time for a family, yet you made the decision to take your family over to Europe to take up that role. How did that role come about?
2: Was well, see, very brave or very silly of me, <laughs> and we were going to find out once I applied. To be honest, it's a job that I had dreamt of since journalism school. I remember watching Lisa Owen doing that job and thinking, that is what I want to do one day. And as you'll hear later, I had a few setbacks in my career. And I thought, to be honest, I probably wasn't worthy enough for such a prestigious role. And so I guess I'd stopped dreaming about wanting to do it. And then I'd gone off and had a family. Then one day the email popped up in my inbox, European correspondent. And I thought, why? Why not? Why not just put your name forward? And I came home and I said to my husband, hey, babe, the European job's up for grabs again because it comes up every two years. And he goes, why Why not? Why not? Because he genuinely, as did I, thought there was no way in a million years TVNZ would ever send a mother into that role. And he thought he was safe in encouraging my dreams, but that they were going to be quashed by the selection process. And to cut a long story short, there was quite a long interview process. My daughter had been really ill, another experience in hospital um, with pneumonia for eight days. I'd missed all the job interviews. And I thought, well, if anyone is going to tell their employer what their priorities are in this situation, is that if you miss a job interview to look after your daughter, then I'm essentially telling them that, you know, my family will always come first. And if I'm going to take this job, then that is how things will work. Uh, And then miraculously, (laughs) I call it miraculously, I got offered it. And four and a half weeks later, we were off. And at the time, I don't think we had enough time to think about what we were doing as such. I just knew that it was a dream that I'd had. And I felt like so many doors had opened for us to walk through to get that role. And it was everything I dreamed of. I mean, we went across with an 18 month old and a four year old and that plane flight was the worst experience (laughs) of our lives. We didn't come home because we didn't want to have to go through that plane um, experience again, but the job itself was absolutely incredible. And my husband stayed home with the children for two years over there, which enabled me to have the freedom to go off and give that job the time, the energy and the justice that it deserved. And I could not have had a better time. Like, I look at at what's happening now with COVID and how that has changed the job so dramatically. And I look at what I had in the two years that I was there. I had royal weddings, <laughs> prime ministerial visits, lots of... I think we we reported in something like 20 or 22 different countries in the two years that I was there. Like, it was insane. And then, of course, the world's just changed so dramatically since coming home. So it was... It was wonderful. But as I say, we certainly drew quite a few looks when we left for Europe with our three trolleys and 10 suitcases, two car seats, two prams, <laughs> the porticot, everything. Yeah. But we did it.
1: That's amazing. Now, some people might picture it as quite a glamorous role. You know, you're staying in flash hotels, you get to talk to amazing people, lots of resources at hand. What's the role like? <laughs>
2: Well, it's not glamorous hotels. It's tough. It's amazing, but it is difficult. The hours, I'm sure if you thought about it, the hours with Britain are completely opposite to us. So you'd be up at three in the morning, standing in minus five degrees, freezing, (laughs) doing live crosses back to New Zealand. Then, of course, you'd work the British daytime. You might try and get a nap if you could, but then you'd be back up in the afternoon. It would be now time for breakfast news because New Zealand was starting to wake up. And then you'd work through the night so some of our days I mean on extreme days but some of them would be up to 21 22 hours long it was hard work but yeah the glamour is not is not really what you'd call it I was so cold on so many occasions (laughs) but it was it was just amazing to be in that environment and to be working with some of the world's best like in press scrums with journalists I idolize I guess and just the stories you get to cover the access you get to places that you'd never get access as a member of the public. And I'm a real news geek, like an absolute news geek. And there's such awesome stories coming out of the Northern Hemisphere. And I went all through that Brexit time, which may have bored all of New Zealand, but it fascinated me. And, it, yeah, it was just a really amazing time to, to do that gig. So, yes, it's not all it's cracked up to be, I guess, on the outside, but it's definitely worth it. Mm.
1: Now, when you Google your name... Images, of course, come up. There's one image in particular where you're in tears, and when you find out what that picture is about, I can relate, having experienced some of some of what caused those tears. But can you tell us what that picture was all about?
2: <laughs> um, that was the time the cameraman William and I accidentally walked into a plume of tear gas, and it was my first experience with tear gas. And I can tell you, it burns. It burns really hard. And I say accidentally because we'd been really, really careful to avoid all of the conflict. And we thought we were in a safe zone. We were just walking out of some riots into our hotel and we walked into what we thought was smoke, but it wasn't smoke. It was freshly sprayed tear gas and it was extraordinarily painful. But the concierge at the hotel we were at was sort of waiting at the door with glasses of milk. So we just like doused our eyes in milk to try and get it to stop.
1: Yeah, I remember experiencing it in Bethlehem, when oh. some end of 2012, and some protests between young Palestinians and the Israeli Defence Force. We had Molotov cocktails flying over our head, being thrown by the young Palestinians. They'd set up burning barricades and, of course, how the Israelis are going to respond. So tear gas, so in the middle of that. So I know what that feels like. I saw that picture. I saw what it was about. And I'm like, yeah, I get, I get yeah. that. And you can't know unless you've breathed it.
2: And you'll be pleased to know the next time we went back for riots in Paris, we took all of the things we needed. I had, like, wet cloths for my things, eye drops with me. I was prepared the second time. I think you have to have the first time to be prepared for the second. Hey,
1: want to move into what this discussion is mostly going to be about, though, because this podcast is about exploring with journalists the one story that's had the biggest impact on them personally and professionally. And for you, it was the Christchurch earthquake. Twenty second of February twenty eleven hit at twelve fifty one six point two magnitude I think which was a little bit supposedly smaller than the one that had come in September the year before but it had a much bigger impact killing one hundred eighty five people. This was your home. Can you walk us through that day for you? Yeah, it's a
2: day that I've only probably just in the past few months, started to feel comfortable talking about mm. from my experience because it's been quite a long journey.
1: Can we just, uh, before you dive in then, can yeah. we explore that? Because I, I read your 10-year article that you wrote. That idea that you hadn't talked about it publicly, why is that?
2: I just don't think I was ready for the emotion that it brought up. I think it's a lot easier to tell other people's stories than to come face-to-face with your own, and it's a lot easier to... to have perspective, I think, when it's someone else's life, when it's not your own, your own feelings. And I have walked a really long journey since since the earthquake. I mean, I got really bad post-traumatic stress from it and all of the baggage, I guess, that goes along with that. And I'd taken a long time to kind of feel and then the guilt and all of the emotions that whether they're right or wrong, but the the emotions that go with it. And to kind of come out the other side, I guess, a sense of maturity to look back and think, actually, it wasn't my fault what I experienced. Um, it wasn't a sign of weakness what I experienced. It was just that's what happens to life. And But it's, it's taken me probably 10 years to acknowledge that. And, I mean, I just never – I still, to this day, have not watched the footage back from from the reporting that day. I just think there's some – chapters or, or parts of that world that I just am going to keep closed for a wee while longer and just open things as and when I've got the strength to okay. do it. But yes, I mean, I'm happy to talk about the day now because I've processed it in a different way.
1: Yeah. If, if, if I do ask any questions or there's any part where we go that just doesn't feel like a safe place, uh, feel free to say, okay? Uh, (laughs) Judging by what you wrote in that article, I think we'll be fine. But just to put that on the table, I don't want to throw anything out there that could put you in an uncomfortable position. So it starts shaking. Talk us through what was going on for you.
2: Well, I was on a day off and I just, um, I think I did a workout in the morning. So I was just having a shower and I just hopped out of the shower. So I was just on the way back to the bedroom and it starts shaking. So I am naked. I am in the doorway holding on to each side of the doorway and it is just pounding it is so loud my husband's at home as well because he was on a day off as well which was great and he's at the other end of the hallway and like the hallway's straight but everything was just bouncing so much like I would never have believed a house could bend so much that our view was being obscured of each other because everything was just coming in and out it was terrifying, That's absolutely incredible. terrifying.
1: That's incredible because yeah. I remember being there not long after delivering a seminar at one of the tertiary institutes there, and it was just a, it was a tiny aftershock, and I had just imagined shaking, but it's like the ground turned into liquid. It felt wavy, and it was just. It was minor. So hearing that in a straight hallway, the house was bending so much that there were moments where you couldn't see your husband, that's a big deal.
2: In my head, I can't even reconcile how that happened. But I think you put so much trust in the ground underneath you being still and being stable. I think we're just brought up to that. So that when it's not, your brain is just all over the place and you're thinking, how do I survive this moment? You know, we were lucky. we did, We did survive, but, I mean, the house was turned upside down and, and, you know, had various damage and stuff like that. So my husband managed to, you know, run down the hallway and at the end and we, we were together and we were okay. It quickly became apparent, of course, this was a huge after, well, not, well it wasn't an aftershock. At the time we thought potentially it might have been an aftershock from September's. Uh, and we heard on the radio that people were being dug out of rubble. So I got dressed I knew that my work would need me in there. Couldn't get hold of anyone. Um, the phone lines were down. So at this um, point,
1: you hadn't had a call or anything saying, come into work?
2: No, because all of the phone lines were down. So, And we knew, again, that that's what happens with telecommunication systems. I don't live that far from, from the central city, maybe three or four kilometres. So we just jumped in the car, and Jeff came with me, and we tried to get as close to the central city as we could. But again, slightly naive, because we didn't click that how badly damaged the, the roads would be. There was just mud bubbling up everywhere, big cracks in the, the roads, sort of kind of like a rally track, kind of getting as far as we could. And then in the end, we just gave up and walked the last probably 1.5 kilometres. And as we walked into the city, there was just streams and streams of people coming out and covered in ash or dust you can see blood, lots of tears, everyone trying to get hold of loved ones on their phone. It was an absolutely surreal situation, especially because we were going against the tide. We were walking into the mayhem mm. as people were coming out.
1: I just want to note here that instinct, there's a journalistic instinct that seems to be in play there. Because, of course, human instinct is to run away from the danger first responders run towards the danger. It's just in their DNA. And we often think about fire, ambulance, uh, police as the people who would run towards the danger. But I remember in our Friday prayers podcast where we covered six of the Christchurch journalists who were first on the scene at the March 15 shooting. There's just this instinct where they would run towards the danger, which puts them in the position of first responders. They're along with the other first responders, and they're the ones relaying, the information what I hear from you and it's why I asked to reiterate that there was no call that said come into work it's your instinct in play as a journalist to run towards the danger
2: I think as well when something happens natural human instinct is you want to help so you know if someone falls over you want to go help them up again and I guess in some ways that's exactly what I felt I felt I need to help and I haven't got the strength to dig people out of rubble that's not really what I can do, but I can talk and I can I can convey messages. And I think what we'd learned is just how, how incredibly important the media is in these situations to, to provide messages that the authorities need to get out. That's our job is to communicate those and also to communicate to everyone else what's happening so that they know we need help. And I I felt a really strong sense and pull that day that that was what I needed to do. And so that's why I walked in. And I I don't think my brain ever comprehended not doing that. I just knew I I needed to get to work. And of course, when we got to work, (laughs) our building was very perilously (laughs) leaning and, and we couldn't get in. So, you know, again, you're like, oh, okay. well, what do we do now? So my boss just said, look, you you need to go. We hear CTV buildings, something's happened there. Can you just go and, and, and tell us what you see? And essentially that is what I did for the whole day. I just told people what I saw. Because this is before the age of smartphones. Bearing in mind our communications network is out. So it's not like I'm getting updates from the council and from the government and from St. John and police and stuff. I'm just telling people what I see and then just grabbing anybody I could see that walked past me Asking them what they saw, then reconveying that to people. And then if I saw someone in an authoritative uniform, you know, seeing police officers, obviously I knew from from doing my job, asking them what messages they would like. So I I basically just saw my role that day is to communicate what was happening on the ground. And as it turned out, I was outside the building that saw the biggest devastation, the biggest loss. It was the CTV building, a five-story building, which pancaked. And 115 people ended up dying in there. But at that moment of reporting, I had no idea of the devastation that I was standing beside and reporting on.
1: Mm. The media world is relatively small, and it's really small in a place like Christchurch. So that CTV building and the people inside it connected somehow. Did you know anybody in that in that building?
2: Not closely. Obviously, everybody knows of someone and you know, a couple of colleagues of mine had very close friends that were in that building. The journalist I did know, actually, she wasn't in the building at the time. She was in Hagley Park, Emily Cooper, and she's got an incredible tale of survival as well. Mm. So, no, I didn't know anybody personally in the, the media building, but that was my doctor's surgery, and the doctor's surgery was on the fifth floor, and I'd seen my doctor just the week or two beforehand, and she didn't come, come home. So, again, it's not a personal relationship, but you definitely you know people Passed, and that's a heavy, heavy cross to bear.
1: Yeah, it's. A, I mean, it's a city where everybody was affected by it in some way. Nobody escaped being affected by it. As a reporter, you get to the the end of that day. You've been reporting information. You've seen stuff. A lot of traumatic stuff. You've been through your own experience. And your own experience at that point, as a journalist, is on the back burner because you're telling other people's stories. So there's been no reflection of what this whole thing means for you. At what point do you decide the day is done, uh, it's time to go to sleep somewhere?
2: When they stop putting you on air, essentially. So we were doing live coverage just for as long as was needed and the call was made at about 10 o'clock at night. I think, okay, we'll stop live coverage and we'll start again at 6 tomorrow morning or 5 tomorrow morning. So at that point you could, you know start thinking about what what next but a lot had changed from the moment I'd walked into the city at about one thirty or so till 10 o'clock at, at night by that stage the city had emptied so in that time I was based outside CTV which is next to Latimer Square which is a, a big park they'd set up a makeshift morgue there which was essentially just some tarpaulins where they were putting people who unfortunately had not survived and, and, you know, you're, you're seeing death really, really up close. And then you'd spent that whole afternoon with families who had loved ones in the CTV building waiting for them to come home. And, I, you know, I'd spent time with this lovely man who'd brought his pet dog to try and see whether that dog might be able to find his wife. Mm. And then another, you know, we saw amazing stories of survival too. So we'd had a lot of ups and downs, but I think my job is always... To be, I mean, you can't have a journalist being hysterical on the news. And my job is to be measured, and my job is to offer observations in a measured and balanced way. And so that is what I had been doing. So I'd been seeing all of these things, communicating them, but had never, ever thought of the humanity, I guess, that was tugging at my heart of what these stories and who they represented and what they meant until... You're off air. And then we're walking home. Obviously, the whole city by the stage has been cleared. It's only emergency services and first responders there. And I'm walking back to our car. Lisa Davies, who's a um, good friend of mine and a colleague, she was walking with us. And we're walking down Barbados Street, and there's just tanks coming up. And this is a one-way street, so we're coming up the wrong way. And there's liquefaction everywhere. And it, there's smoke. There's sirens going off everywhere. And it was, you felt like you were the only person there a little bit like tomorrow when the war began or something. You know, you felt like you were in that situation. We walked back to our car with Lisa and tried to drive Lisa home because there's no other way of of getting home apart from walking. It's raining. It's 10 o'clock at night. She lives quite far away. And again, I just felt like there were angels that took our car home that night because there were potholes everywhere that we couldn't see You know, we dropped her home, and as we're driving back, and then the next day we saw the roads that we'd driven on and thought, how on earth did we manage to do that? But again, I don't think you really processed it. You went to bed, came home, yeah, no power, no toilet, stuff everywhere, and then you just knew you had to get up the next morning and do it all again. And so you'd be stepping over broken glass, and, and you just didn't have time to pick up anything. You just stepped over it, lay down lay but come back up again i don't think necessarily much sleep happened
1: yeah that's a, that's an important point to make because because often you'd go out cover a story there'd be a sanctuary back home home would be a place of normality you come back home you'd have your bed you'd have your routines But none of you in Christchurch, nobody reporting, none of the first responders got to come back to that sanctuary after having been out there in the middle of it relaying the information for other people. And then you didn't have any time to sort your own home out because you're back out the next day telling the story as well. There's an important part in what you've just talked about where in the relaying of the information, there wasn't any consideration of the human impact of what it was that you were saying on you. And it's very easy for journalists to get into a space where you relay the information, then you move on to the next story, you relay that information, you move on to the next story and you relay that information. One of the pieces of feedback that we had to the first episode of this with Paula Penfold was someone saying they'd never considered the personal impact of these stories on journalists. The problem is, I don't think enough journalists have considered the personal impact of these stories on them. But you've now, after 10 years, you talked earlier about PTSD and the stress. How did that exhibit itself once it started to come home to roost?
2: Well, I think, first of all, it's, it's very difficult to be hugely empathetic. No, I think you need to be empathetic to be a journalist, without a doubt. But I think it's very difficult to be empathetic with every single situation that you're in because then then you would feel too much that you wouldn't be able to do your job. Does that make sense? You need a level of empathy to be able to tell a story, but you also need to have boundaries within that empathy. And I think that's what I had developed. I mean, I was a seasoned reporter by that stage. I had covered all sorts of tragedies. I had developed an ability to put up a boundary. And I think that boundary, as you say, Frank, was being able to go home at night to a different world, my world, which was safe and yeah, the earthquake changed that because I wasn't able to go back to a haven that was safe and, and and was different. I know journalists often fly in, fly out of a situation, and that's how you can report so effectively on it because you can come from a, a you know a different perspective. I didn't have that option. Neither did a lot of journalists in, in that moment. And I think it first manifested in just not being able to sleep. You know, I would would hear a helicopter and I, I just, I shut down. I just lost all sense of being able to be happy. And I'm a really naturally happy person. And I just lost the ability to, to find enjoyment in the little things. And it just started to show itself. And, you know, I'd smell the smell of smoke, which of course was a a big smell that day with the CTV building. And I just, it would just bring back too many memories and so it came obvious that I wasn't really coping and I ended up having a lot of counseling to kind of process where it was. I think one of the big uh, effects for me was I became really fatigued. I just couldn't walk to the end of the, I couldn't walk to the letterbox and back without being exhausted for half a day, like absolutely exhausted and bearing in mind I'd run a half marathon a few months before that. So this is quite a different Yeah, a different scenario for me. And it took quite a long time before I guess I admitted that that things were not great. TVNZ were fabulous. They had flown in reinforcements and they'd provided the avenue for all this counselling. And then I actually ended up needing about three months of stress leave, which, you know, it's kind of difficult to say now because I just felt like I was almost taking the mickey. I didn't have any outside injuries, but inside I was breaking and to take three months off work for something that you can't see I felt like maybe I was being a fraud but anybody that knew me (laughs) knew that if you can't walk to the letterbox and back you can't do your job and so it took a long time to do that and I think what came with the fact that I fell over I guess for, for better words was that I felt like a real sense of failure that I was the one journalist who couldn't hack it I felt like I had let the team down. I felt like I was weak, that I didn't have the mental strength to do this job. I felt ashamed, really ashamed. And I never talked about what I saw that day, really. We all had experiences. Nobody's was worse than the others. And I guess I just felt useless. And it took a long time before I got my energy back And once I got my energy back, by that stage, my confidence had been really badly shattered. And so one thing fed the other. And of course, we had extra staff come down from Auckland and it was wonderful to have the extra support in the newsroom, but they hadn't lived what we had lived through. And the journalists that had lived through that day, we were really close. Um, And for various reasons, many of them left either the industry or left the city, you know, they had better support away from Christchurch. They didn't need to be in Christchurch, perhaps. Of course, why would you stay if you didn't have to? Um So a lot of those people we'd walked that day with had gone. And I think that was a really wise move. I I would have left in a heartbeat if I could. But we'd just bought our first home and financially we were stuck here. And I'm really glad now that we did stay. Really, really glad. But at the time, I think it would have been much easier to to deal with everything I was dealing with internally if I didn't have to see it every single day and report on it every single day. And although you'd feel like you'd be making progress, just like grief, you'd just be thrown back in there. I mean, I remember covering, I mean, it must have been a year after the quakes, a coronial inquest in a really sterile courtroom. And you wouldn't have thought anything there would have been a a trigger as such. It was so different from what the day was. And they played a one, one, one phone call of a lady who never ended up um, uh, coming home. And I, that just hearing her voice and hearing the desperation and knowing what I was seeing at the time of that phone call, it just came flooding back and I started to cry. And I'm in a courtroom and you can't cry in a courtroom on the press bench and I knew that if I left the courtroom I had to walk past every single family member of that person and I thought how can I be crying when they're so strong and brave listening to this themselves I can't show that it's affecting me because I don't want to disrespect their feelings and in the end I ended up crawling under a desk which in hindsight seems like the most ridiculous thing to have done And I crawled under the desk so that the judge couldn't see me, so that the family couldn't see me, quietly losing the plot. And I'm like on my computer underneath, like texting my boss. And he's like, you need to get out of that courtroom because it was just coming at me. And I was like, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. Without causing a scene, I cannot leave this courtroom. And it was at that point I realized I'm really broken by this that I kept thinking I was making progress in the sense that my energy had had come back but I just couldn't escape the hurt and the humanity and the death that I had seen that day and nothing prepares you for that I mean we're journalists we train we go to broadcasting school we we do degrees to become journalists but there's not a paper on how to look death in the face and survive it and then report on it and then continue on and at that time I didn't Really know about many journalists who've had post traumatic stress at all. I didn't feel like I'd seen anybody go through it and come out the other side, so I didn't have any necessarily any hope to hang on to. And at that point, I decided, right, I'm quitting journalism. I'm out of here. I can't. I can't hack it. And it coincided with becoming pregnant, which was a lovely. Well, I thought it was a really honourable way of leaving journalism. I thought, right, I'm going on maternity leave. I've done my decade. And I'm gonna be a stay-at-home full-time mum, and I'm not quitting journalism as such, because I'm becoming a mum. And I just thought that was that was it for me because I just couldn't couldn't hack it anymore. And just going back to the point of, of post-traumatic stress in journalism, it was going-I mean, I'm a journalist, so naturally I was researching what I was going through. And I had this great um boss, Brenda, who had come from the BBC, and she used to look after the war correspondents. So she was telling me about the post-traumatic stress that her former employees would experience. And of course, I thought, well, you can't compare a war with an earthquake. I mean, that's really unfair. W- steering war in the face must be so much worse. But she kind of told me about some of these huge journalists that I have always admired their work, about the fact that they had had journeys. And I think that kind of helped me to see that it's not always the end. And I think that's what I looked at. I looked at how I was coping a year and a half into my recovery and thought, I I can't do this anymore. This is the end. But I saw that others had done this. And then I read some statistics that said something like 9% of all journalists get post-traumatic stress and up to 20% are deeply affected by stories that they need counselling. And I just suddenly thought, I'm not alone. Because I felt like I was the only person that couldn't hack that day in a professional capacity. I felt like I was the only one, and hence why I thought that I would never be able to be Europe correspondent, because I thought, I guess I lost all my confidence. I I thought, I'm not strong enough to hack a big, prestigious job like that. And I guess I believed these lies, and so my confidence had taken a huge battering, mm-hmm. But then time's a great healer and, you know, I became a mum and then I went back to journalism part-time and I remembered everything I loved about it. I love storytelling. I love people. I love being able to speak for people who can't speak for themselves. I like being able to find stories that can change policies, that can change the world that people live in. And I, I guess I fell in love with journalism again after having my year off With Jonathan and and slowly the healing kind of came together I still felt ashamed and still never talked about the fact that I was dealing with post-traumatic stress but then I had another daughter (laughs) and you know and I just think I got stronger and I learned different ways of coping and I learned to be a bit more honest about what I was thinking and feeling and over time when that that email came into the inbox and said European correspondent do you want to do it I thought oh, why not? And I just don't think I would have had the confidence to have responded that way any earlier because I genuinely thought that I was damaged goods. And I guess doing that job and doing it to the best of my ability, I, I guess I, I reminded myself that I actually, I can do this. I've been given skills. I've been given passions to tell stories. I I am a human for a reason I mean, that sounds silly, but I I do have human emotions that can only help storytelling. And I feel like everything that I learnt through the earthquake process has made me a much, much better, stronger, empathetic, real, honest journalist now. Uh, And I don't think I could have done that European correspondent role had I not had a really big journey beforehand. And of course, the earthquake for me was that journey. Mm.
1: Joy, you've just done all my work for me. I was expecting to have to ask a whole bunch of questions to draw out much of what you just said. That's a what you've just done is a real gift. Everything you've expressed is why we started media chaplaincy end of 2014, beginning of 2015 because what you went through is not unusual and your response and and your PTSD, It's completely understandable and completely normal. I remember gathering together a small group of people who work in media, not journalists specifically, in Christchurch with a counsellor. And we talked through, this was after the shooting, we talked through what PTSD looks like, what the symptoms are, because we recognise that in Christchurch there are a whole bunch of collective traumatic events that had taken place. And at the point where you would usually recover from that, people would start coming out of that trauma Another tragedy would hit, and so uh, this counsellor started talking about what what the symptoms are, and every single one of the people in the room had symptoms of PTSD. Some of them weren't connecting their symptoms to the stress that they had been through. Another reason I think it's really, really valuable is because I think if you do your job well, and in my view, most New Zealand journalists are excellent at what they do. If you do your job well, people don't see you. They just see the information that's being put on the table, the story. And then they either agree with the information or they don't. might trigger some sort of emotional reaction for them or not, but they don't see you. And so when they fire in their emotional response to a story, and sometimes it comes in the form of complaint, they'll throw on the table horrid things often because they're not considering the human being because they don't They don't understand that there's a human being behind that story. So for everything that you've just said, thank you. I think it's extremely valuable.
2: Thank you. I guess just on that, we're taught that you never want to make the story about you. So that is why we don't ever show our impacts and talk about what it means to us is because the story isn't about us. The story is about what we can see and what we can hear and what other people are telling us and are about other people. So, we're taught nobody wants to hear your problems <laughs> yeah. and that's why we don't share them. And I, and I, I agree with that because you don't want self-involved people, you know, rabbiting on about what they're thinking when, you know, you want to hear from authorities. But yeah, I think the earthquake was a real wake-up call for New Zealand media about the fact that you can live through a trauma in your own world and it is your own trauma at home as much as it is at work.
1: So, Joy, with all the experience that you've had, you look back now on journalism in New Zealand and you would have seen it change over the years. What do you imagine for the future of journalism in New Zealand?
2: Well, I think the whole industry is changing a lot, especially internationally. Uh, I think, first of all, I've got to say we're very lucky in New Zealand. I must probably sound biased, but we're very lucky in New Zealand that we have a relatively unbiased, honest, non-corrupt, real media presence And that is something that we cannot ever take for granted. Having worked overseas, I've seen the other side, I've seen how polarising communities can become if they have media feeding their own agendas. I'm saddened, I guess, that the number of journalists seems to be dwindling, but I'm also heartened that those that are coming through seem really passionate about what they do. They're not fly-by-nighters. They seem... You know, really keen to be telling these stories. Um, I think we probably need more investigative units in New Zealand. I think it's sad that over the time we've lost some really amazing storytellers. But you know, the likes of Stuff Circuit and Sunday Program and stuff—they're still there. And I think, I guess, the danger is the more we, we technology changes, the more technology we have the less people we have to do the job and in essence our job can't really be replaced by technology because our job is people our job is finding stories is sharing heart is communicating messages and you can't ask a robot to do that and so I just hope that it doesn't. We don't get slimmed down too much. That that we lose the essence of storytelling, and that our job doesn't become so full of all the technology that we never used to have to do that we do now. That we forget what our essence, what we need to be doing: fact checking, you know, going through and, and getting second, third, fourth sources and those sorts of things. And because there's such a an appetite for news now, like it's get that story out as fast as you can. I think the danger is that that things like accuracy and sources and fact-checking can perhaps take a back seat, and that's something that I feel really passionate about that cannot cannot be broken.
1: Mm, I think just to pick on a point there, uh, I think it's really good for people to understand that some of the – Information that they see coming through in some stories that may not be correct, and a lot of people will point that stuff out, is not because the journalist isn't interested in the truth or because they have some massive agenda that they're trying to put on the table. It's because of the nature of needing to get so much information out so quickly is that some of the stuff that you've just expressed that you value – is being put on the back burner a little bit every now and then. And sometimes stories suffer because of it. That's not because the journalist does not value truth.
2: And also you sometimes are repeating what you've been told from a certain agency, which then turns out not to be true. So you've got to realise that sometimes we are just voices for other organisations. But as you say, I think any journalist who's worth their weight... It would kill them to know that they'd put something that wasn't true in in a story because essentially the reason we do what we do is because we're so passionate about truth. Mm,
1: Brilliant. Hey, Joy, it's been a pleasure. I think you've given a wonderful insight into the life of journalism in New Zealand and what goes on behind the scenes. Joy Reid, my friend, thank you so much.
0: Oh, my pleasure. Uh A massive thanks to Joy Reid. Thanks also to RNZ for hosting this series. At Media Chaplaincy New Zealand, we believe in the value of our media. So we offer free, independent and confidential support for media professionals. Thank you for taking the time to listen. And if you rate what we're doing here, please rate this podcast five stars and send it to someone who might appreciate it. Make sure to follow so you don't miss future episodes. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio and more. Plus, you can find more about us at mediachaplaincy.nz. If you know a New Zealand media professional who could use a safe space to process, one of our chaplains would love to shout them a coffee. So do encourage them to get in touch.